2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. When I think about what the NJAD pilot is going to do, largely you're going to be a mission manager. And as we make the journey into artificial intelligence, you'll see sophisticated pilots assistants operating as part of a team of manned and unmanned aircraft. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your usual host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, but you longtime listeners know that every so often I hand the microphone over to a co-host who has a great guest lined up to discuss another cool subject. Well, my friend Matt Arney did the honors for our last show of the month in January, and he's back to round out February with another big thinker talking about another forward-leaning topic. I got to get back in the studio to work on more videos, so I'll see you again next week. But as for this week, take it away, Flounder. Thanks, Jello. Joining me today is Mike Mobile Holmes, retired fighter pilot and a general officer. Mobile enjoyed a 40-year career in the Air Force, including time leading the transformation of Air Combat Command, which is a global organization operating 1,000 aircraft and 11 bases. He also served as Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Plans and Programs and the Deputy Commander of Air Education and Training Command. Welcome, Mobile, to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Hi, Matt. Happy to be here. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You've got an amazing background to be able to talk about some aspects of the future of air warfare. But let's start a little bit further in your background. So you were a UT volunteer and uh, you got commissioned the Air Force out of that. So can you give us a couple minutes of what your career looked like? Sure. So I was at Tennessee. I walked on and tried to play football. I learned I was small and slow, but lazy. <laughs> Other than that, I had everything they were looking for. So I was in engineering school. I needed help with college and I did a cooperative education program with NASA at Kennedy Space Center. And I learned to fly in Patrick Gerald Club and decided I wanted to pursue a military flying career. I kind of shot between the Navy and the Air Force. I was headed toward the Navy and that didn't work out. And so I got a commission in the Air Force through OTS. The short version I tell people is that the Air Force gave me three careers. First one was teaching people how to teach people how to fly and fight F-15s. So I had three ops assignments uh, with a trip to the weapons school in between the first and second and was a squadron and wing weapons officer for about five years. 
And then that ran out. I got selected for school and major, and I was a little lost. Wasn't sure how I fit into the Air Force. And after a trip to UCOM uh, on the staff there in the three, they gave me the chance to learn how to lead Air Force organizations as a squadron commander, as a group commander, eventually as a wing commander twice, uh, once in the Strike Eagle at Seymour Johnson, and then again at Bagram with a composite wing, air expeditionary wing that included some Navy assets, the Prowlers that were there on one of some of their last deployment. And then I came home from Bagram in 2009, and that kind of ran out, and I was a little lost. Again, after working in OSD policy, the Air Force gave me a chance to think about how to build an Air Force for the future as the programmer, basically the strategic planner, and then at Air Combat Command, trying to figure out how ISR, cyber, and our conventional forces fit together. That is amazing. And so you had F-15C time and Strike Eagle time throughout there all those leadership opportunities and converting that into taking your thoughts and what the future of the Air Force is going to look like. What an amazing career you had. I did see in there that you went to the Naval War College. I did. Great program. When were you there? I was there uh, the year before 9-11. So I finished up a squadron command tour, uh, went up to the War College, got promoted to colonel while I was there, came out to the Pentagon that August And then, you know, 9-11 happened two weeks later after I signed in at the Pentagon. Were you in the Pentagon when it got hit? Uh, I was there that day, you know, and there's some long stories that go with that. But then from September 12th until about Christmas Eve, I ran the night shift of a planning cell that the Air Force put together. They took Checkmate and my organization, the Skunk Works, and put us together and we did kind of 24-hour support to airmen all over the world, getting ready for the invasion of Afghanistan and thinking through our defense posture and responses there. Wow. I, I'm thinking of uh, a whole series of podcast episodes for you, but uh, but we'll try to stay focused on our future of air warfare topic. Well, how many flight hours did you end up with in your career? I had about 3,010 in the F-15C, another 700 or so in the Strike Eagle and about 300 in the T-38 as an ops group commander in pilot training. And then I flew the T-38 to the very end as the air combat commander, as an adversary for Raptors at Langley. So all in all, about 4,000. Well, good. So let's get into next generation air dominance. And I think that there's a foundational question we need to answer right off the bat. Is it NGAD or NJAD? Depends on which service you're in. It's NGAD in the Air Force and NJAD in the Navy. We can't even agree on that. That's amazing. We continue to have shared but different languages. That's right. So if you could, you were a junior officer in the F-15, learning how to fly and fight that platform in those tactics that we used back then. And also back then, you know, in in my time in the Tomcat, we seem to have more multi-place aircraft where as we're migrating now towards more single seat aircraft, even you mentioned the Prowler, we went from four people doing the job to two people, but the people who are doing those jobs now are just dealing with a lot more information, fusing information and and making decisions. There's five-year-olds out there today who are going to be flying NGAD or NJAD in the 2040s. What do you think that experience is going to look like for them? Well, you know, I'll, we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit through that history you did. You know, I really enjoyed being a single seat guy in the F-15A and the F-15C and being responsible for putting all that together. And, you know, the avionics we looked at, we had a radar warning receiver, we had a HUD, 
eventually we got a situation display after we got GPS on the airplane and Link 16. But for most of that time, you know, we were supposed to put all that together in our head and have a mental 3D picture of what was out there. And then you get to the F-22 that pulls that together an electronically scanned radar. So and no longer is your manhood or womanhood based on how well you could run that thumb wheel and operate that radar and build a 3D picture. It's all there for you. And the computer works through and ranks targets and puts them into a shoot list. And you kind of say yes and hold down an acknowledge button and, you know, missiles come off the rail and do that. And then you get to the F-35 that takes that avionics integration and combines it between multiple aircraft to display the information that we built with radio calls in a standard picture, you know, in the old days. We'll continue to build on that. And when I when I think about what the NGAD or NJAD pilot is going to do, there'll be some flying involved, but largely, you know, they're going to be a mission manager that's forward to provide the autonomy that we need forward. And eventually there may be some AI algorithm that can make all the decisions that we want to make. But I think we'll start off with a high-performing airplane with really matchless avionics that are being put together and mission systems put together in a new way where they coordinate a level beyond what you see in the F-35. And as we make the journey into artificial intelligence, you'll see some sophisticated pilots assistance that will be thinking and offering choices to the pilot of an NGAD or NJAD platform operating as part of a team of manned and unmanned aircraft. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, I think we'll, we'll likely start off with a command system to have the information that your airplane is providing. It'll also be integrating with collaborative combat aircraft, unmanned systems that are out there flying with you, and then information from national technical means that are just being passed to you through some kind of downlink and pulling all that together. And then you'll be tasking your collaborative combat aircraft. And I think we'll start off with something like you'll take a queue and you'll pick a point and you'll tell one of those things to go fly there and station keep until you tell it to do something else. Uh, you might tell it to go put a sensor on something on the ground or to put its sensor in a piece of sky. You might move several of those around. The information will start to triangulate targets. That pilot's assistance will build a shoot list for you on what it's determined out there. It'll let you know when there are shooting options, either from the collaborative combat aircraft or from your own magazine on your aircraft. And you'll be making decisions about the right way to use those tools while an AI assistant helps you execute your decisions. So it'll be a different world, but I think it really builds on what we've done. A good friend of mine, Dr. Stefino, wrote a book that kind of traces the progress of fighter crews from knights of the air into being computer managers and how the myth and the kind of ethos kept up with that. And I think you'll continue to see that evolution. You won't be pulling a whole lot of Gs on a regular basis in an NGAD or NJAD but your brain will be pretty stressed while you try to sort through lots of information and decide what's the best way to direct this manned and unmanned team that you're out there leading. That's an amazing synopsis of what that future looks like. Interesting book. That'd be, that'd be a great one to look into. Yep. So you mentioned a little bit of the kind of cockpit functionality you envision. As you put yourself sitting in that cockpit as a 25-year-old in the 2040s, Obviously thinking a joint helmet, thinking big displays, typical stick and throttle or side stick, or what are you thinking it's going to look like? I think it'll likely have a side stick and a throttle like we're used to, mostly to have buttons on them, you know, for you to use. I think the autopilot 
or the pilot's assistants will actually be doing most of the flying, but you need somewhere like a, a Super Hornet Rio or a Strike Eagle Wizzo has a couple of sticks in the back for moving the displays around and doing things. I think you'll you'll use them for both of that, but the airplane will largely be flying itself based on the commands that you've planned and then that you direct it as you go. But the HOTAS will still be a big part of it. I suspect that we'll have a lot of visualization aids on that helmet, perhaps to include augmented reality that'll show you where you can be seen and where you can't be seen. You can think about a plane, you know, coming out on the curvature of the earth of a long range radar that's displayed to you on your helmet where, you know, if I stay under that, they can't see me. Once I poke my head up there, they're going to know I'm here. There'll be cues like that, both on your displays inside the cockpit and outside in three-dimensional space. There'll be cues that tell you, if you look to your left where your unmanned wingman is, you may not be able to see them. They might be too far away, but there'll be a cursor that tells you where they are when you look out there. So you can look out and see, you know, if they blow up or not to visually confirm that missiles come off of them in the long range. And there'll be lines drawn on it to tell you where you were supposed to cap. If you're political lines, you're not supposed to cross. We'll move and put a lot of that out there for you in visual form. So you're not having to sort back and forth between multiple displays. Really, really, truly heads up, which, you know, there's been concepts of aircraft of the future that don't even have windows, but really, you know, we're still thinking cockpit, see outside, visual uh, deconfliction, all that kind of stuff that pilots need to do. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we, we always said, uh, you know, when we added Link 16 and got a sit page, a lot of guys flew heads down quite a bit of time. I would joke and say, uh, and all the time I was flying the Strike Eagle, I never turned around to look over my shoulder and saw anything except the top of my Wizzo's helmet while they were buried back there and all that information that was available to them. And so the guy that'll kill you be the guy that doesn't show up in Link 16 or the threat that isn't displayed by all that great tech that you have. That's the one that'll kill you. So I think you're still going to want to look out the window. So what about weapons we're thinking are going to be complementing this family of systems? Well, I think we'll have a comparable new technology air-to-air weapon, and then we'll have some kind of seed weapon as well on the airplane, because when the airplane's moving forward to achieve air dominance, it'll be against air threats and ground threats, and you'll want to have a mixed weapon suite. You'll have to have a trade-off between range and how much fuel you're carrying and what kind of payload, what the number of those weapons will be. But I think that's one of the advantages, again, that a collaborative combat aircraft unmanned wingman can offer as a sensor extension and a magazine extension to put missiles out there forward to where you can shoot them earlier at a threat. But really to increase the range of your sensors field of view so that you can get the full use out of those weapons that you're carrying instead of being limited by your detection capability or your own ability to build a 3D target level queue, you'll have help from other sensors to get the full use out of the range of those weapons you're carrying. Yeah, that's that was an interesting concept we talked a little bit about in episode 149, the future of air warfare in that, you know, we've done so much to try to increase the sensor range of our aircraft, but there's only so much you can do. There's only so much power you can put on these things and there's curvature of the earth and all these kinds of things. So having those CCAs out there uh, or other assets will be pretty important as long as we have the weapons that can support that. I saw there was uh, word of the first operational launch of a hypersonic for the Air Force. So how do hypersonics play into this or do they? 
Well, I think, you know, there's a couple of advantages a hypersonic weapon offers. To me, they're not a, a revolutionary change in what you're doing. It's an evolutionary change. And the couple of examples I see are one, they make it hard for terminal defenses to defend against them. They can arrive with a whole lot of energy and do a really high energy terminal maneuver in the target area that makes it really hard for any terminal defense to shoot them and guide to the target. And the second thing is in a world where, you know, we're in a battle of long range fires with our peer adversaries and they're kind of shooting at known targets, ports and airfields, just trying to keep us out. And we're trying to find mobile, intelligent, hard to find targets, mobile ASATs, mobile ballistic missiles, mobile air defense weapons. The time of flight of weapons that you're going to shoot becomes important because they measure, you know, how long you have to keep custody of a target and track it and know exactly where it is. So if your adversary's fielding systems that shoot, tear down and move and reset up again, you have to be able to keep custody of them through the time of flight of a weapon. And if you can cut the time of flight of that weapon in half, you don't have to keep custody of them as long. And speaking of enemies shooting and moving and all that stuff, and you mentioned SEED or SEAD a little bit ago, suppression of enemy or defenses. Let's come back to the Growler because the Air Force got out of that business a, a while ago. And so as great as an NGAD or NJAD is, it's still going to need that airborne electronic attack capability. So where do you see the Air Force or DOD going in that respect to complement and make sure we're preserving the single seat WIZOs in these NGADs? Well, I think there's a couple of paths. One of them is that when you look at the sixth generation of aircraft, the way we'll put mission systems together, those airplanes won't have a radar and a radio and a jammer. They'll have apertures that reach from a very low band down into the tens, you know, of hertz, all the way up into the visual spectrum. And they'll be both passive sensors. They'll be able to actively emit on those frequency coverages, and they will split time as a radar, as a jammer, as a passive receiver, and as a software-defined radio. So the airplanes that you're going to fly, both NGAD, NJAD, and the CCA, will have the capability to do some pretty sophisticated electronic combat techniques across a broad spectrum. But the Air Force is continuing to buy a replacement for a TC-130 fleet to be able to bring a higher power jamming in, you know, kind of up to the curvature of the earth and your ability to reach there. Congress is going to add some extra onto the Air Force's buy, and it's moving the weapon system into a Gulfstream airframe that can get you up into the 50s and get you there faster and let you stay there longer. I hope that the Navy will continue to maintain that growler fleet. I think they'll need it for the air wing. There's some talk about the Navy shutting down the squadrons, the joint squadrons that are primarily Navy with a little bit of Air Force air crew added into them. And I hope we can find a way to hold on to them because, you know, in our current planning, even if you're going to send B-2s and F-35s against targets, they like to have that standoff jammer back there behind them to raise thresholds of detection for adversaries and bring other techniques that help them get on and off targets. Yeah, I know that's something that comes up periodically is uh, supporting the expeditionary mission with the Growlers. So we'll, we'll continue to see where that goes. Um, you got Strike Eagle background. So in a lot of you know the great technology of aircraft the last 20, 30 years, we end up flying overhead, doing close air support, that kind of stuff. So do you see NGAD or NJAD having that kind of capability to do that close in support of troops on the ground? I think it'll have, you know, air to ground weapons on it. I think it will 
and the numbers that either service will be able to acquire, I think it's likely that they'll spend their time preserving air dominance against both air threats and ground threats. That weapon, air to ground weapon that they're carrying will probably almost certainly have the capability to go after GPS coordinates if you needed to go hit something while you're in there. I'd envision them operating in highly contested battlefields with the air-to-air team of CCAs, but also with the B-2 and the family of systems that go with it. So I think what you'd see is an entire system up there working together to hit those targets in a close air support environment. It's usually going to be a shorter range battle than maybe where NGAD is or NGAD that are pushing way up close to an enemy. If you're operating with a forward line of troops in contact on the ground, you can probably base kind of traditional fighters close enough. So I think you'll see a lot of F-35 from all the services doing that mission in the future. That paints a really good picture. So what are we missing on the NGAD discussion? Any other key points that you think would be informational for listeners out there on on this concept? Well, you know, I would walk through the Air Force story as it, uh, you know, as A-8, the Air Force had a program to look at a next fighter beyond the F-22. And based on the environment in the world with kind of opposition to manned aircraft in some political circles, all the alternatives that were out there, we spent a year and did a study, you know, Air Dominance 2030. And we put a really smart young general officer named Alex Grinkowicz, who's now the vice commander, the deputy commander at CENTCOM on it with his job for a year. And they kind of searched high and wide. They went to everybody that would talk to them. They found hundreds of ideas and concepts. They deconflicted those down to 60 or 70 that weren't the same thing said in a different way. They split those up into some options. They followed them through and they looked at all the different ways to achieve air dominance in the environment that we think we'll face. And ultimately they couldn't find a way to do it without having a manned platform in the 2030 timeframe. There may come a time when it's not required, but ultimately they decided it was. And then providing that capability is really important, but I think both the acquisition systems are really excited about the progress they're making in integrating mission systems in a new way and in building an all digital designed airplane that can be modified both hardware and software with a digital thread and a digital twin. And I think our acquisition system is as excited about what they'll learn about how to build aircraft of the future and integrate mission systems and weapons of the future as they are about the NGAD or NJAD platform. That's great history on the Air Force and and also great awareness for people out there that obviously, no matter what comes out of these processes, there's some really good, smart, passionate people making the best decisions that they can along the way. And so in your experience, how did you see the services working together and how did you see them diverging in their concepts? Well, I think there's a little bit of a uh, you know hangover from a joint fighter project. We go through that every generation or so. We decide to do a joint fighter project. And ultimately, we decide that while there are things that we both need, that the requirements for an air wing carrier-based fighter and the tasks that they're expected to perform and the requirements for an Air Force fighter that might have to range from fairly short-range activity all the way out to escorting a strategic, very long-range bomber across its target. We end up diverging in our requirement enough that I think both sides believe it's better to develop their own platform. But where there is a whole lot of discussion and commonality, 
is in that mission system development process and the mission system integration process. So I suspect you'll end up with airplanes with some different outer mold lines, some different characteristics based on the different missions they're going to accomplish. But there'll be a whole lot of similarity inside that outer mold line in the mission systems they're carrying and the government reference architecture that pulls those mission systems together, both within the airplane and outside the airplane into the command and control process. Yeah, interoperability, I think, would be key. A few Another conversation we talked about how you could be a Navy pilot flying your NGAD or NJAD, whichever one, and uh, you know you end up working with some collaborative combat aircraft launched from some field run by the Air Force or Marine Corps or whatever. The systems need to be talking to each other. And, you know, frankly, in the era of as we move into where every radio is going to be a software defined radio, we can figure out how to do that. Even if we spend money going other ways or on other data links, we put you'd call an app or what the NGAD guys call a skill of Mattel on top of your software defined radio system. And you can do that as long as you have the right frequency coverage, you ought to be able to build that waveform using the computer and a software defined radio to be able to reach out and connect to anybody with the waveform that they like. You just have to be willing to share that with each other. Yeah, that, that's great. You bring up skill. I hadn't thought of that since I was at Tailhook this last year and I sat in the T7 trainer and I wanted to talk to you about the T7 a little bit, but just pivoting on the skill thing, could you kind of describe what's going on there? Because that was pretty interesting for me. Well, the idea is that you have a set of apertures that again, maybe cover from very low frequency all the way up through visible light that are bringing in both situational awareness and the information you need for target quality track information. And then those apertures all have a processor behind them and that processor can be fairly common between them, you know, a high speed, high memory computer that operates to connect that information together and make the weapon system sensors work together to get the track information you need. And then on that processor, you run the skills that are required for the different mission set. So you may be doing mission planning to say, who am I flying with today? I'm going to be flying with the Navy, so I need to have NIFCA capability. I'm going to be talking to an Australian guy who's in an E7. I got to make sure I'm loading the skills that I need to connect there. We're going to tabulate that. And when I take my data cartridge out to the airplane, you know, it's going to tell all that to the avionics when I get in so that I'm riding and running the skills that I need to communicate with the people that I need to and accomplish the mission set that I'm assigned today with the people that are going to be out there. Beyond the things we talked about a pilot doing, I think there will be some AI guided and pilot driven decisions on how you configure your system for that day based on what you're going to accomplish. And if it was an iPhone, we'd call it an app. Uh, the engineers in this system are calling them skills that you run on it. And I think if I remember right, I think one of the benefits is, and I was in the test world for a little bit, and if you did something to the aircraft, you had to go through a whole process to make sure your certification was good. But if you can sandbox all your critical flight control stuff, you're able a little more freedom to change those skills around, right? Yeah, there's an approach called Kubernetes that, you know, the computer scientists uh, in our group are familiar with where you can separate the aircraft operational flight program, you know, into pieces so that you can change one piece and it has a standard interaction. And for instance, you know, you don't have to worry about if you add a new skill for Mattel 
to be able to talk to F-35s. You don't have to go back and make sure that doesn't interfere with the flight controls or the flight science laws. That's in a separate module. And so the modules interact with each other. You just have to make sure each module works. And then their protocols they use to communicate with each other will let them still communicate. And now you can add skills, you know, in the same way you get your update from Apple once a week or every two weeks, a new skill can be loaded. And that's particularly important when you think about electronic warfare and electronic combat. You know, a new threat's been deployed or we've seen a frequency change. You can do that in real time if you think about it through your backhaul communications that these guys will have. As long as you can communicate through some kind of satellite link, you might be having updated electronic combat profiles loaded while you're flying or while you're en route to the target. Yeah, amazing. So going down the T-7 line, so you were Deputy Commander of Air Education and Training Command, and we've got the T-7 coming out, I think, late 2020s. So really, not to get too much into that platform, but how do you see how the Air Force in particular is going to evolve training pilots, and how does that feed into that 25-year-old flying the platform? Well, we started off with the T-7 as kind of a one-for-one replacement for the T-38 in the Air Force. T-38s have been extended into probably their third or fourth service life. And, you know, eventually you had to find a replacement. The problem was training pilots in a third-generation capable platform with third-generation avionics and then having them jump in what we call a B course, the long transition course at the FTU to try to learn not just how to fly a new airplane, but how to take information in a new way and how to put all that together. So we needed an airplane that had performance. It was closer to what the airplanes people were going to when they finished pilot training. And the T-7's a zippy little airplane. I got to fly one of the two prototypes, nice performing airplane, but then it has kind of one screen avionics that can be programmed in different ways. Boeing will have an approach to how they want those to look. But you can envision a world where, again, you came out with a DTM today and it made it look like an F-35 cockpit or made it look like an F-22 cockpit or made it look like an NGAD cockpit. You don't have the sensors on board, but it displays information to you in the same way those will look. So you can start learning how to look and gather that information, you know, from day one in the airplane. And then we'll see there's talk about whether we want to use that airplane then as a way to experience pilots quicker. We had an idea called Rebuilding the Forge or Shortened to Reforge. It was based on a trip I took to the Israeli Air Academy where they fly their fighter candidates up through four-ship air-to-air and four-ship surface attack tactics before they join a unit. They build that skill set. They're experienced in accomplishing those missions. And then they step across the street into an F-16 or an F-15 or an F-35 squadron and they do a local checkout and they're not learning how to be a fighter pilot the first time they go to an FTU. They're just learning the airplane. And their advantage is that the high cost per flying hour of a fifth gen airplane or a sixth gen airplane limits the flying hours you get. It also stretches out the time it takes a young air crew member to be experienced at handling emergencies, fighting the weather, uh, learning how to do the things that every pilot has to know how to do, regardless how sophisticated their airplane is in combat. Could you fly that cheaper airplane that's at about $5,000 a flying hour and bang out a couple hundred sorties on on young aircrew members and then send them across to the other airplane and have them be experienced from day one in that airplane with the kind of general flight skill knowledge that is hard to get in the simulator? 
Yeah, that 25-year-old I keep talking about in the 2040s, that'll be interesting how much T7 flying they do and the live virtual constructability to bring in uh, threats and scenarios and fascinating world for those young folks now. Well, that's something to think about. The overall training environment, you know, if you have an unmanned aircraft, it doesn't have to fly to train, right? So you probably don't need to build them to last as many flying hours because you're not going to go fly them 25 or 30 times a month. You can envision a world where you're going to keep them in boxes and pull them out, you know, once a year at Red Flag or once a year at Fallon when the air wing is getting ready to be certified to deploy, make sure that the stuff works. And then you'll train the algorithms and train your crews in a virtual environment on how to use them, what to do, how to work through that skill set we talked about for that future air crew member. I don't think you'll want to fly them every day or fly them all the time because you don't need to pay for that flying hour cost. You don't need to wear them out. And then you also don't necessarily want to be out there in an open air environment where your adversaries can watch what you're doing and learn your tactics and find ways to beat them. Yeah, that's a lot. It's really, uh, really interesting for you, I'm sure, to be able to participate in those conversations as you culminated a tremendous career in the Air Force. So I applaud you for that and um, appreciate how you helped set the direction for those young folks who are going to be fighting the nation's wars and, you know, doing our bidding uh, for years to come. Well, it's an, you know, it's an exciting time. I, I have a son that's an F-16 captain in the guard, taking his instructor pilot check here. So always in the back of my mind or the, the young guys that are there now, you know, that will be commanding the squadrons when that time happens. But also, you know, when you start thinking about building an Air Force for the future and that first career I had of being a squadron weapons officer, I was really focused on those air crew members that I was trying to help be successful and survive. And my command opportunity that expanded to, you know, ops and maintenance, to everybody that it takes to run a base, to the whole community that it takes to operate. And then when you think about an Air Force of the future, it expands to people that are in high school or elementary school that'll be in that Air Force or the Navy of the future. Yeah, truly. A lot of people impacted. So what are you doing now? Uh, I work uh, as a kind of advisor and consultant for several groups of people. I enjoy that. I'm still able to keep my hand in on some of these projects that I care about, still represent some of the defense communities that host the bases that take care of our airmen and their families and our sailors, you know, and their families so that they can do this mission. And I'm involved with two or three nonprofits, Air Force Historical Foundation, where we're trying to rejuvenate and kind of revitalize in a world where young people, you know, don't buy annual memberships to things or read magazines that come in the mail. How do we fit that in? I'm a member of the Air Force Studies Board, which is part of the National Academies of Art Sciences and Engineering. We work primarily for the vice chief of the Air Force. He gives us problems to go look at. We bring in a team of technical experts and come back with some suggestions for him. And then I'm part of a counter-suicide nonprofit called One More Day that tries to bring data-proven methods to the fight against suicide and military members and veterans. Very busy in your retired life. How much time do you actually get to spend on all those guitars back there? Uh, a little bit every day, not as much as I would like to. Uh, you know, there's a day coming when I'll have some more time for that. I'm sure that's what you keep telling yourself, but we'll see. Tell you what, you're, you're quite the inspiration and got a lot of great perspective. So I appreciate you sharing some time with us on the Fighter Pilot Podcast today. 
Well, it's great to be here. Thanks to, to you guys for pulling this together. And thanks to the audience that have some interest in it. It's been a pleasure being with you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Yeah.